Good morning. Good to see you this morning. If you would, you're going to respond with, yes, I'm all in. I'm all in. Are you all in? Yeah, that's much better. Uh, we're in March, so we're getting there. Yeah, by the end of the year, we'll have this down. There was a, was a father who, whose wife passed away from cancer, and he was left to raise his infant son on his own. And while he did the best he could, he was gone a lot. He was building a business, became a very successful business. But his son grew up to resent his father. He felt like he was neglected. The son eventually went off to college. And it was in college that he grew and he matured. And he realized how selfish he had been being. And so he decided to work on the relationship with his father. And so he would call him up and they would talk. On weekends, he would go home when he was able to. Holidays, he would spend with his father. And, and the gap between the two was closing. They were getting closer and closer together. When the son would come home, he would often drop hints to his father. They would drive by the car dealership and he'd say, well, sure would be nice to have one of those as a graduation present. Particularly the Lexus dealership. It's an expensive car, but his dad could more than afford it. And so he would continually drop these hints about, you know, Dad, it sure would be great to have one of those sitting in the driveway with a bow on it for my graduation present. And so he graduated from college, top in his class. He comes home after the graduation ceremony, and with all his extended family, they go to the father's mansion, and, and his father calls him into his office. And he pulls out his drawer, and he sets a, a beautifully wrapped box on his desk. And he pushes it across the desk to his son, and his son is so eager, he opens it, and it, it's a Bible. A beautiful goatskin Bible with his name engraved on it, and the son is livid. You let me down again. All I wanted was a car. You, you could afford a car, but you let me down another time. And his father said, don't you want to open it and see what I wrote on the inside? And the son says, no, and he left. Stormed out. He eventually gets married, doesn't invite his father to the wedding. He has a couple of kids, doesn't invite his father to the birth of those kids. But after some time, the son realizes just how selfish and self-centered he's been. And so he calls up his father and he begins the work of restoring their relationship. And things are going pretty well. He's moved far away now. And so he comes up with a plan to to bring his wife and kids to meet his dad. Dad never met his wife, never met those grandkids, and so they come up with a plan. They're going to go and visit. But right before they do, his father dies of a massive heart attack. And the son and his family hop in the car, and they drive the 1,000 miles back to his hometown. And when he walks in the house, he starts sorting through his dad's stuff. And he goes into the office, and he finds that the desk... It's cluttered, but, but there on top is, is that Bible, the gift that he didn't want. And so he goes over and he sits down at the desk and he opens it up to read what his dad had written inside. And, and lo and behold, he finds a bookmark. He'd never noticed the bookmark before. And so he turns to the page that's marked and he sees highlighted Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
and the son begins weeping, thinking about how selfish and self-centered he had been, and he picks up the Bible, and he holds it close to his chest, and when he does, a key falls out, and he recognizes it as a car key, and he goes out to the massive six-car garage at his dad's house, and in one of the bays, sure enough, is a car covered with a bow on top, and he goes and pulls the cover off, and there it is. That Lexus that he had wanted so badly that he had asked his father for and dropped hints about. The gift that he did not get to enjoy because he did not like the way it was presented. Have you been there? I know I have. I have been guilty of not enjoying the gift because of the way it was presented. Growing up, I went to church, and I didn't like the songs that were sung. I thought the sermon was boring. I thought the whole service was old-fashioned and stale. I missed out on the gift because I didn't like the way it was presented. And maybe you've been there as well. I think I'm speaking your language. I think all of us have probably been in that boat one time or another. Some of you have a hard time even treasuring the gift because you're so distracted. And that's not your fault. It's a great thing that you have your kids here, but it's caused you not to hear a sermon in quite a while. Let me tell you, you're not missing a whole lot. But it's great that you have your children here, and it will pay off in the long run. But still, there's others who scroll through their phone, who daydream, who think about all the things that they could be doing, and all the things that they will be doing as soon as that last amen is said. Have you been there? Have you been guilty of forfeiting the gift because you didn't like the way it was presented? It's a problem that we have so many worshipers who don't appreciate the gift, but even a deeper problem than that is those who come and they go through the motions and they follow protocol, and yet their heart is never engaged. And it's a problem that Jesus addressed among a group of people that we would rather not associate ourselves with, but a group of people that we may find we resemble more than we would ever like to admit. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? I think about Jesus in that moment. You think about his reaction. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care that anybody was offended. I said what I said. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now, 
a key verse in understanding everything that Jesus is talking about here and understanding the context of this passage is found in verse 9. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now, we've talked about this before, but in the strict Jew, the, the Pharisee's mind, there were two sections of the law. You had the written law, which was the law, Torah, the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments involved. That was the written law. And then you had the traditions of the elders or the oral law. And the oral law was man-made. Of course, the law came from God. But the Pharisees made these, these fence laws or these hedge laws around the law to keep from even getting close to violating the law. And it's within this context that Jesus addresses their problem. They had many traditions that were incorporated in the fence laws. One of them was cleanliness. They were big on cleanliness. The Pharisees felt that you were not able to approach God if you were unclean. You couldn't worship in the temple. You couldn't come to God in an unclean state. And so cleanliness was of vital importance, and many things could make you unclean touching an animal, certain animal, eating certain foods, having contact with a Gentile. There were all kinds of things that could make you unclean, touching a dead body. And so to get around this, they came up with strict standards of cleanliness because you could never really know if you were clean or not. If, for instance, you went to the busy marketplace, you would never know how many people you rubbed up against that were unclean. Remember, Gentiles were unclean. And if they were treading on the same dust that you were treading on, well, that dust was unclean. That gets on your shoes or your sandals, then you're in trouble, right? So since you could never really know, you went through these elaborate systems of washing or cleansing. And they were quite elaborate. For instance, many jars were set up with water. And the minimum amount of water used to wash your hands would be one quarter of a log which was defined as enough water to fill one and a half egg shifts. And so what they would do is they would hold their hands with their fingers pointed up and pour water over their hands. It would run down to the wrist and then off of their hands. Now, it couldn't run back down their hands because the water is now unclean, right? So you pour it over the hands as they're pointed upward. Then you pointed them down with fingers down and poured water over them again. The unclean water would pour off. Then you would take your fist and you would wring your hands to make sure that they were clean. Now, a strict Jew didn't only do this before the meal, but did it after every course as well. So you'd have your Big Mac, you'd wash your hands. You have the fries, wash your hands. You'd have ice cream, not for McDonald's because machines always broke, but you'd have ice cream and you'd wash your hands, right? In fact, there is a story about a Jew that was placed in prison and given only water and bread to eat and drink. And instead of drinking the water to hydrate him, he used it to wash his hands before he ate the bread. Because he said, I would rather die than transgress the tradition of the elders. So that's what Jesus is dealing with. And you can imagine there must have been several times where he wanted to beat his head against a wall. Jesus also points out how hypocritical that they have been through all of this, and he wanted them to know that he doesn't follow their oral traditions because they're so ridiculous, they're not even following them themselves. And listen to what he says. 
And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? This comes on the heels of them questioning him about why he and his disciples didn't wash their hands. And so he says, For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or his mother. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So the Pharisees used their traditions to evade God's command. Understand, the written law and the law of the elders, the tradition of the elders, in their minds, they were on an equal playing field. They were on the same level. They weren't, but in their minds they were. They elevated their oral traditions to that level, on the same par with God's word. And so Jesus is dealing with this, and he's pointing out the fact that they are evading God's command for the sake of their own personal traditions. They're using the oral law to circumvent the law. And one of the reasons or one of the ways that they did this was that they would give their money to God in the temple. And then when their parents, who they were supposed to honor, would come and seek assistance in their old age, they would say, sorry, we gave our money to the temple. We have no more to give. Then when their parents died, they would go back to the temple and recoup the money that they gave. It was a sick and disgusting practice for people who were supposed to be religious. And not only that, they had the gall to question Jesus about not following their oral traditions. Notice verse 6 again. And by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In Mark's account, he says, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Rusty Brown, who is our missionary to Ecuador, him and his family are over in Ecuador. He was here last summer, as many of you remember, and he and I got an opportunity to visit one day and we were talking about just different church experiences and he mentioned a time when uh, early on in his career fresh out of college he was in uh, another part of the United States helping a church that was dealing with some difficulty they were having a dispute and he was asked if he could help settle the conflict well, there was another church close by, a rural congregation, that was also dealing with some conflict, and they saw how Rusty was handling things, and so they asked if he would help them as well, and he said, sure, I'd be glad to. And they said, but before we enlist your help, we, we need to ask you some questions. Basically, we need to know where you stand on some things. And so the men of this congregation came down, they sat with Rusty, and one of the first questions they asked him is, are you a lifter or a lever? Anybody know what that means? I don't either. Rusty didn't either. But apparently there was a tradition long ago where before the communion elements were partaken of, they were covered with a white cloth. And so the elders wanted to know, before you pray for the communion elements, do you lift the white cloth or do you leave it covering the elements? And Rusty responded, I guess I don't really care. And they said, we thought that's what you would say. And they walked away disgusted. And you hear the echo of Jesus' words, and by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. I think about some Christians, not all. I think about some back in the 50s and 60s who looked down on others because of the color of their skin. Some promoted segregation, even saying that it was God's will. 
You know what that is? That's honoring God with your lips while your heart is far from Him. We call that vain worship. And here's another definition. It's eating yourself. That's what we call this. Vain worship is eating yourself. It's the church thinking it's doing everything by following the rules, forgetting about the relationships in the process. When rules override relationship, we start devouring ourselves and we become police instead of nurses. We worry more about compliance than we do compassion. And that was the Pharisees. They were more concerned with protocol than they were people or even their own parents. They cared more about protocol and red tape than they did the people around them, which prompted these words from our Lord, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, those are people-related things. Tithing the mint and dill and cumin, that was important, but it wasn't people-related. Therefore, it wasn't the most important, and that's what Jesus was driving at. These Pharisees were so meticulous at tithing even the single plants from their garden, yet these same people were cruel and unjust and arrogant. And I'm afraid, folks, that that spirit is not dead. Unfortunately, there are those in the church that wear their best clothes. They put their check in the offering plate each week. They attend both times on Sunday, but they're rude to the waitress at lunch. They're a jerk at work. They act like a total fool at basketball games, yelling at the ref and the coach. They have all the outward actions of religious activity on Sunday yet their actions during the week are completely irreligious. And Jesus is driving home the point that the externals mean nothing if the heart isn't right. And no matter how valid our traditions may seem, they're traditions, which means that they are not to be elevated to the level of truth. They are completely worthless compared to the greater virtues. And all of this leads to worship that is nothing more than noise. The prophet Amos dealt with this in his time, and I love what he says. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll out like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, Israel's worship was like nails on a chalkboard. It was an irritating sound. It was hollow. Why? Any guesses? Some might say because it was done with the wrong heart. I would suggest to you it was done with no heart. And that's what vain worship is. Because heart is more important than style. Heart is greater than tradition. Heart is greater than preference. You come to God by divine prescription, not human reasoning. And it's all vain if the heart is not engaged and only the lips. In Genesis chapter 4, we find two men who bring an offering to God. Their names, of course, are Cain and Abel. And I think this episode has much to teach us as modern-day worshipers. Read with me. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought an offering. 
from the firstborn of his flock and from their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his face was gloomy. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, will not your face be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain talked to his brother Abel, and it happened that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, while this passage is somewhat vague as to the particulars of Cain's offering, I think we can rightly assume that God established a time, a place, and a way pertaining to worship of him. But the question that begs to be answered is, what was wrong with Cain's offering? Well, we're going to speculate a little bit here based on good scholarship. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. The word better there in the Greek is the word planoa, and it can mean greater or more important. Some believe that the implication of the phrase also brought with the use of the word firstlings, which is plural here in Genesis 4.4, it indicates that Abel gave more abundantly than Cain. That literally, Abel gave more, meaning in greater value and quantity. Here's something else. To the Jews, blood always stood for life. I mean, you can't have life without blood, right? We know that God required sacrifices of animals. Was Abel's sacrifice considered better because it came from a living creature? It's been suggested that Abel brought his best and Cain brought his leftovers. But one thing I think we know for sure is that worship involves faith, and Abel's faith was the main feature here. That's why he's in the Faith Hall of Fame. Wasn't his offering, but it was rather how he brought his offering, with faith. Here's the deal. Your offering is never detached from you. Cain got mad because Abel's offering was accepted and his was not. And God says, why is your face gloomy? Why are you mad, Cain? You have no reason to be mad at anyone but yourself. You knew the rules. You disobeyed. You did your own thing. You brought leftovers. And therefore, the only one you have to be mad at is yourself. And of course, Cain is upset because his offering was not accepted. And God, knowing what was in his heart, warns him. Sin is crouching at your door. God saw that he was going to kill his brother, or at least he was thinking about it at that point. And God says, sin is crouching at your door. It's lurking. You better do something with it. And he doesn't. And of course, we have the first murder in history that follows. Cain worshipped by reason. Abel worshipped by faith. Your worship is never detached from you. Worship is an end in and of itself. Worship's the goal. Worship is not a door leading to something else. You don't worship as a means to get to something else. Worship is the means. It is the goal. Worship is the end in and of itself. Nothing else in, in, in our spiritual lives is like that. Evangelism isn't like that. Evangelism isn't the goal. No, evangelism is done for the purpose of reaching the lost, making and growing disciples. Fellowship is not an end in and of itself. Fellowship is the means to an end, growing closer together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian education is not an end in and of itself. The goal of Christian education is not just knowledge, it's transformation, it's growing and developing as disciples. 
Only worship is an end in and of itself. The content, the substance, the life, the goal, the end is the joy that we ascribe to God, the glory that we ascribe to Him. In fact, the authenticity of our worship is threatened when we treat worship as some sort of means and not the end. Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And so if he's still speaking, what's he saying? What's he saying to us as modern-day worshipers? I think the main thing he's saying is, don't be Cain. Be an Abel. Bring your time, your talent, your treasure, not your leftovers. And I think he's saying, you're the offering. You cannot detach yourself from the offering. Do you know why? Because you're the offering. You're it. So you cannot detach yourself from the offering like Cain did. You always remember that you are the offering and that worship is the goal. It's not a means to an end. It is the end. How many of you remember uh, Howard Hughes? You heard that name? Howard Hughes was a billionaire entrepreneur. He had his hands in a lot of things during his lifetime. He was an inventor, an investor, a philanthropist, a movie director, a pilot, an engineer. He accrued a lot of wealth over his time. At the end of his life, to put it mildly, he was weird. He became eccentric and a recluse. And he built a lot of uh, casinos. And after his death, his PR director decided that it would be a good idea to observe 60 seconds of silence in every one of his casinos. That at some point in the day, they'll just halt all gambling activities and observe a moment of silence for Mr. Howard Hughes. And so the casinos obliged, but there was one pit boss and one particular casino that kept his eye strictly on the clock. And as soon as that 60 seconds was up, he said, all right, roll the dice. He's had his 60 seconds. And I wonder if that's how we treat God sometimes. He's had his time. Now we have our time. We come to church maybe once, twice, maybe even three times a week. We engage in religious activity. We give God his time, and then we go and do our own thing. We live like an angel at church and like the devil the rest of the week. We're very religious on Sunday, completely irreligious the rest of the week. Or we just come in, we follow protocol, and then we go back to our regularly scheduled programming. And I don't have to tell you that that is not the best mode of operation. You want worship that is hollow and not hollow? Well, then remember this, God is most hallowed when we find our greatest satisfaction in him. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You get God right, you get everything right. Not just here, but out there as well. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for worship. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship as a family. And may we engage our hearts, not just our lips. May we always seek 
to be the offering, to never think that we can detach ourselves. And may we always remember that worship is the goal, not some other means to an end. We love you, God. We thank you, God. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. If we can help you in some way, if we can pray with you, if you'd like to study the Bible with someone, if you'd like to take that next step in faith and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, we are a family that loves you and wants you in the kingdom and a part of this family as well. So if we can help you in any way, why don't you come as we stand and as we sing.